as well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage and you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party and I can officially say now Merry Christmas because it's Advent so Merry Christmas to you. Uh, today's guest is Tracy Brabin and I've just finished the interview and I feel so energised by it. There are some people you talk to in politics that leave you with the sense they are impatient for stuff to be done now and that doesn't mean that Tracy was impatient with me, I don't think she was. I mean, that's what's brought her into politics, is that desire to get stuff done, a real practical approach to it, and a sense that things aren't fair, so let's deal with it now and get on with it. Such a practical and pragmatic approach. That's not to say that practical and pragmatic politicians aren't thinkers, that they don't have their own driving political philosophy. It's just that sometimes when you talk to a politician, you get the sense they have a particular type of drive and that's what Tracy Brabin has. You may well have known her as I did for many years uh, as a star of Coronation Street. When I was growing up, we watched Coronation Street all the time. Um, and I, re- I remember her vividly uh, being Trisha in Coronation Street. So it's, it's so cool to have seen her go on and have a second career uh, as such a brilliant politician. And now she's trying to become... She's currently the MP for, for Batley and Spen. We talk about, obviously, how that came to be the terrible circumstances around the murder of Joe Cox and Tracy having to be the Labour candidate in that campaign and not just have to campaign after a friend of hers had been murdered in the most brutal way but also the other pressures that put on Tracy to then be the MP for Batley and Spen to fill those shoes uh, that Joe Cox left um, and, and that element I... I sort of admit I hadn't really considered what toll that would take on, on Tracy personally. So we talk about all sorts of things. Of course, there's a bit of Corrie chat in there. And the parallels, the irresistible parallels between being an actor and being a politician. And not in the cynical way that you might think, or even just in the in the basic way about learning lines, projecting your voice. Um, but the other elements of it, actually, the, the kind of deeper elements come out, the, the connections between the two. Or not. Um, and there may be actors listening to this who would disagree with some of the points that I put to Tracy. Um, I began by asking Tracy, because when I worked for the Labour Party, I remember we had so many soap stars. Ross Kemp would do broadcasts for Labour. And particularly when I worked for Labour in the North West, 
so Coronation Street stars would would be on every leaflet. Liz Dawn, in particular, the star of Corrie, Vera Duckworth, was on pretty much everything we did in the north of England. So I began by asking Tracy if Coronation Street was a hotbed of socialism. Well, certainly, as I was doing exactly the same thing as Liz uh, before I, uh, before and whilst being in the show, that um, I travelled the country supporting Labour candidates. I remember doing an, a TV ad for, for recruitment into the Labour Party. You know, you use your your profile to try and support the party because of your values. Uh, but I'm not sure it's a hotbed. And certainly William Roach was spoken about in the chamber yesterday when we had our adjournment debate as a real friend of the Conservative Party. So it is many and varied. He was. I think he was friends with Neil Hamilton, I remember. Is that right? Well, he was. he's also friends with John Whittingdale and many others on the Tory uh, front benches so you know everybody's entitled to their political views of course and I do think um, it's good that people can use their profile and often as um, an actor I would go to events where they couldn't get any press for this local candidate who's standing for council and just because you you're there and you you're on a show that people care about then you know press calm and they get a bit more coverage so it's the least you can do if it's something you care about. Prime Minister's Particularly, I remember Thatcher and Blair visited the Rovers' return. Obviously, Thatcher would have been before your time there. But were you there when Tony Blair had that team photo with the cast of the street? That's funny because, yeah, I was there. And honestly, I was such a, a Blair fan. And I was delighted when he arrived. And certainly when he walked in the room, there was a real change in energy. You know, he was he was very much a charismatic leader. And uh, I did say to him um, as he was pulling the pint that he was doing a really good job. And I said, oh, you know, you should have been an actor. And he did say, oh, I wanted to be for quite some time. And on reflection, <laughs> it's probably, a, um, you know, it's a useful skill uh, uh, to be in that role particularly pretending to you to like people all the time probably and did you say to him at the time i'm a member i'm i'm thinking i'd like to stand for parliament one day or had that not entered your head at that point oh gosh no no that was the furthest from my mind no politics came very much late in life and out of left field so uh yeah i i hadn't thought about that but obviously he would know that i'm a labor member my understanding from the debate yesterday the adjournment debate though that that margaret thatcher had to be told all the plot lines, John Whittingdale took her onto the set of Coronation Street and she hadn't watched it. She didn't know anything about it, but she did want to see the corner shop because <laughs> that's very much her background and, uh, you know, what her dad did. And she was very intrigued by the corner shop, apparently. And, and did Blair know all the storylines and the characters? Well, maybe he was better briefed. I don't know whether he was a fan or not, uh, but he did seem to to know everyone and he seemed very fond of Raquel, Raquel's character and some of the stories that she'd got up to, some of the, you know, the shenanigans. She was the kind of saucy barmaid. Uh, did she go out with Curly Watts? She did. She did. And she was she was beautifully naive as well. And um, I think that was that was her charm that she didn't know. She was very unworldly. I remember visiting uh, Granada Studios as a kid, the, the old Granada Studios, and going to Coronation Street and firstly being struck. You know, there's a real magic when you first visit a TV set as a child. Firstly, how small the street itself was. It looked tiny, it was sort of like two thirds normal size. But the other bit I loved was they had the um, set of the House of Commons, which I think had been used for House of Cards or something like that. Did you ever see that House of Commons set that they had at Granada? No, I would have loved to. That sounds amazing. Um, certainly when they rebuilt um, the street, 
um, in Salford, now they've got, it's wide enough to get two cars passing because at, at, in the old set, there was no way that you could get to, you know, the, an ordinary street vibe because it was only wide enough for one car. But no, I would have loved to have seen that set. And always, I was always intrigued that the front facade of the street, you open the door and there's nothing in there. <laughs> you know, you have to go into the studio in order to get the interiors. Um, and the, their rebuild is fantastic. If you do get a chance to go, it it's really is brilliant, but they've made it look as grubby as the whole set, which is what is job of work in itself. Yeah, because there goes my theory then, because I think I visited Coronation Street. It must have been when when you were on it, and I thought, oh well, maybe you were on, you were part of Coronation Street. Tony Blair visits, then you visit the House of Commons set, and maybe it all started to germinate in that period. But there goes that theory. Yeah, that's a good theory, but unfortunately, it's not fallen into place like that. No. So because it is right, because you were a, a massive star, not just on Coronation Street, on EastEnders, Holly, so many other shows that you've been on, a really recognisable star of British soaps and of, of British drama. It's not like you were a small character. People know who you are. It's quite rare for people of your stature on shows like that to end up certainly becoming members of Parliament. I mean, at what point do you think you've got this amazing career and you're going to effectively either pause it or stop it forever to go into politics? Well, certainly never feels like that when you're a freelance actor. It always feels like you're staggering from one job to another. And, uh, you know, there are times when I'd be working in a bookshop or I'd be waitressing and people double taking going, what are you doing here? And it, came to, it comes to a point where you almost feel like saying, oh, you know, I'm researching a really big film role about this girl who works <laughs> in a bookshop because people don't want their, their you know, their um, sort of assumption about your life they don't want it sort of pierced. They want to want, believe that you're in limousines all the time and always on the red carpet. But actually, it is a job. And it's the original gig economy. You know, mm -hmm. you really are often feast and famine. You, you have one job. You save your money to pay tax. You don't work for a while. So you spend all your tax money. Then you get another job and you save to pay your tax. Um, so it is very much hand to mouth. And certainly, having seen what has happened to the creative sector during COVID, you know, I really, really understand the misery that the, the creative sector, the workforce are, are in at the moment because a whole year's work wiped out of your diary and, you know, living on your savings and when they run out, it's really, really tough. But um, no, I'd never anticipated um, being wh where I was, but I also didn't ever believe that I was a big star. But uh, there is something to be said for having been in or written for um, most of the soaps in the UK. So whether that's being in Corrie and Emmerdale and EastEnders or writing on Hollyoaks or Doctors, you know, I do. And, and uh, my first ever writing job actually was Crossroads. So, you know, I feel I've ticked all those soap boxes. So, you know, anything you, you want to quiz me on soap, I'll be all right. I just, it's, it strikes me that you've, You've swapped one precarious industry for another, one where it's gig to gig, as you say, the original gig economy, where you don't have much job security. The public might perceive that you're a big star and earning big money, but often, as you say, that's not the way. And then you go into elected politics where your job is put to the public vote. I was going to say every four or five years, in recent times, every two years. And although you've managed to win Batney and Spenner originally with a healthy margin and still with healthy majorities. We'll talk about the, the different and perhaps changing politics of Batney and Spenner over the last few years. But again, it, it's the sort of job where it comes with a level of status. It comes with um, coverage. 
But also, it could end one night in a leisure centre if the public don't like you. Well, actually, it feels like a secure job in comparison. <laughs> the idea that you can get a paid holiday is amazing and that if you're off sick as a freelancer you can't work and if you're off sick in this job well you know the office will support you and you'll get through so it is a privilege and it is an honor but it does feel like a secure job and in a way it's also trying to the exciting thing about it is that it can be as interesting as the variety of the creative industry that's what often is very exciting that nothing could happen you could get nothing for months or you could get that amazing phone call and that great plum film role that can change everything. So that excitement of the future is also great. But actually, as an MP, you've also got the opportunity to really define the work you want to do, because there's no handbook really about how to be an MP. There are some MPs that do uh, mainly constituency work. There's some MPs that really are, um, you know, advocates for international politics and are very much in Westminster. So you can define the role how you want. And, you know, I have particular strengths. I, I, I have weaknesses as well. So it's to building on your strengths to make it the best job it can be. But every four years will work for me. But you're absolutely right. In the last four years, we've had five elections, including uh, locals and EU elections. So I'm very comfortable door knocking, put it that way. <laughs> the easy um, comparison, I suppose, with with politics and acting is that people would assume, having been an actor, that when you do your first speech in the House of Commons or indeed any sort of public speaking, you're, you're well equipped, that those things are less intimidating to someone like you than someone who perhaps hadn't had that career. I wonder, actually, given what you said, if the main thing that acting gives you is that uh not that it makes you comfortable but it makes you aware of how short-term life can be that you don't have that job security and whether perhaps that's a bigger skill that you take into politics than than the presentational side actually that's a really good analysis that every moment counts that um you know all that matters is this moment this speech and here and now but there is an assumption that oh tracy you'll, you'll always be good on media well, I've spent three decades knowing my lines, hitting my marks, creating my character, putting in the rehearsal. And actually, I am my own worst enemy. And I really do beat myself up after media because there will be glitches. There will be things that you want to say better, articulate better. You know, a lot of some of these interview programs are are you have to be quick thinking and formulate your sentences. And I will always be very critical of my performance because it's not 100% perfect. I mean, it never can be. But when you've rehearsed and when, you know, when you're professional, that's your expectation that everything is always 100% perfect. So I am, I am quite mean to myself after media outings. But no, I feel quite comfortable talking to um, the public and uh, making speeches and also writing. Um, you know, we work as a team, but I really do enjoy that research and that writing um, uh, speeches and so on. So I, I think there are definitely skills that come from acting and writing that have been very useful. That maiden speech, for, for, for most MPs, it'd be the most nerving speech they ever give. It's the first time that you introduce yourself to the House of Commons and many new MPs talk about how intimidating the building is and the arena is. Um, yours, one of the few maiden speeches to, and one of the few speeches ever in parliamentary history to receive a round of applause, which is usually against the rules. Understandable, of course, in the context of your friend Joe Cox and taking over that job um, after that by-election. Were you nervous about delivering that speech? 
No, I wasn't nervous, actually. I was, um, there was a fury about what had happened that's almost was like a bit like rocket fuel to get the point across that you think you can take someone from us and the lack of democracy of what had happened and we will come back stronger and we will make the case that hate will not win. And I must say, I felt completely supported by my colleagues. The place was rammed. Um, often in parliamentary business, you know, maiden speeches can go ahead with a half-filled chamber. So I did feel the weight of the people of Batley and Spen and the country behind me, and that I'm just a mouthpiece for what people are, think, uh, are thinking and believing, that you will not win. You took from us, but you will, you will not stop the work that we're doing. Um, and of course, you know, for so many of my colleagues who were Joe's close friends, it was incredibly painful for them. And, you know, to, to look around and see people getting quite overwhelmed drove me on, actually. And in the same way that during the, um, the by-election, when I, when I was making my speech after being elected, you know, the far-right candidates who decided now was the time for their democratic right to stand were heckling me and yelling abuse. And it just powers you on. It just makes you more determined to be clearer, more powerful, uh, you know, more articulate to make your case and your argument that you cannot win and we will come back stronger. Politicians are used to getting heckled from time to time, particularly perhaps at counts, usually if they've lost their seat. Um, but the context here, of course, was, was far more severe, was that um, someone had been murdered. So were you... Worried at all when you're in that hall? I mean, I remember the, the the announcement itself at the count. You're stood on the other side of the stage, way away from all those other sort of a, a ragtail, motley crew of assorted different sort of far right individuals who've chosen to stand in that seat and haven't stood in it since. Were you worried at any point in that evening? Were you scared? Well, there was certainly an adrenaline um, that we didn't know what people were going to do if there was any actions that they'd planned. But let's not forget, Joe was murdered by, you know, a far-right white supremacist. And the whole of that campaign was horrific because the other major parties had stood to one side out of respect. And then you've got the BNP standing and other far-right groups. And you, and you know what is really heartbreaking is that they will get some votes that some people in the community that I love, I was where I was born and raised, actually agree with these values and agree with this statement after we've just lost the most amazing, you know, extraordinary woman to somebody who, driven by hate. So what was really upsetting was actually throughout the whole of that campaign, knowing that people that you were talking to or people that in the street, you know, that, that somewhere people agree this is a good idea. So on the night, there was that adrenaline because we didn't know what was going to happen. And I think um, one of the candidates took off their shirt to reveal a T-shirt with a message on. And that was about as far as it went. But certainly there was that sense at the time, less so now, that there was um, a potential for violence that and, you know, their supporters could potentially be violent. Uh, and, you know, I would be the lightning rod for that. Uh, but you just have to have courage and you have to just step up and say, you know, if we are weak and if we don't, if we don't stand, uh, they win. 
one of the most powerful parts of your speech, one of the most powerful parts of that by-election, really, as you've said, is is that the other major parties didn't stand, the Conservatives and the Lib Dems. Even UKIP didn't stand a, a candidate, which I find quite surprising. Well, I, I don't know. They made their decisions. I'm not sure whether they could find a candidate, maybe. Um, obviously, it was quite a quick turnaround because of the circumstances. But I, I think my mind is not really about them. I think um, over the last few years as the MP, and certainly the work that More in Common has done with Kim Ledbetter, who's Joe's sister, running it brilliantly and the Joe Cox Foundation and so on. I do think out of that horrific act, hopefully the work I've done, the work that they're doing, you know, can bring us together more closely to understand that that hatred about the other. And that's where it comes from, isn't it? Um, that fear of the other, that we can break down those walls and bring people together. It must have been so hard for you to, to lose a friend, and it, it was hard for the whole country, really, to to experience the, the murder of Joe Cox. And I still don't think, really, as a country, we've dealt with it. I don't think we talk about it anywhere near enough, actually. I think it's incredible that we periodically talk about it on the anniversary, but I, I, I'm kind of shocked that it's not... A, 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 maybe, I don't know whether you agree with that or not. It, it doesn't feel like we talk about Joe Cox often enough and, and what happened and why it happened. I think you're absolutely right. And I think her legacy work, the Joe Cox Loneliness Foundation, the leadership program, all of these projects are there to remind people that a young mother <laughs> was shot outside a local library in a sleepy village of Bristol, which is where I, I grew up, where my mum had her cafe, her business, um, you know, potentially with people I know witnessing what had happened. I absolutely agree with you, that level of violence and preparation from that person, that level of hatred that to come from one human being uh, does blow your mind when you start to reflect on it. And of course, there is a sense for a fair number of people in the community that life must go on that we must look to the future that we can't be continually reflecting but it absolutely does drive everything that I do and certainly I must say Matt those first few months were incredibly hard you know I could never fill her shoes and everybody loved her so much and it was we were all grieving it was also painful and there were many sleepless nights where I just thought oh, what am I doing I can't I can't go anywhere near her brilliance, her impact, her intelligence and all of that. And then you just have to think, and uh, I comment on this, you know, often because it was so, it was a real turning point for me that I didn't know Angela Rayner at the time, but I was in the, um, it was really early days in Parliament. And remember, I'd never even been in the building. You know, I was really, felt very much out of my depth. And I was um, looking really upset and Angie asked if I was okay. And I said, I just feel like, I just feel like the second wife after the much loved first wife has died. And she said, no, Tracy, you're the second baby after we've lost the first baby who we loved. You're here to bring us together. And I did think, actually, who else is going to do this? There has got to be somebody um, that, that goes into this role. And, you know, it's my town. I campaigned with Joe. You know, on a number of occasions, I believe I've got uh, enormous amounts of empathy and that's what we needed uh, in order to recover, you know, and um, emotional intelligence that you get from decades of being an actor. I think, you know, who else was going to do this? You know, I have different strengths. I'm not Joe. 
but I will do my very best to to do the best job I can and bring us together. So you know, it it was it was incredibly tough. But I do agree with you, Matt. That more should be talked about about violence, and also the, you know, the the rise of these Facebook groups that are that are you know private that fuel this hatred, and certainly it did raise its head again during the Brexit negotiations. You know, my inbox was more full of hate than I've had since I became an MP, and I think the social media platforms and so on have an obligation to take responsibility for some of this hate. And that's why I'm so dispirited that the online harms bill has taken so long to come um, through the stages. And it's, we need to really escalate that as soon as possible, because that's the only way to get the, the, those platforms to take some responsibility for the hate. Um, in the same way, I know that YouTube and, the, and others are trying to do that. It's really important that we reflect on it and keep it with us and not forget how we ended up in this place you're absolutely right i haven't really considered just from your personal perspective I, I knew it would be difficult for you taking over from from a friend of yours that was murdered but how difficult it would be being the new mp for that area as, as you know you, you wouldn't find anyone with stronger local connections to the place than you but 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 to take over from someone who's so revered um i, I hadn't sort of considered how difficult that would be um, one, the one thing that was incredibly helpful, and there's no way I could have done it without them, was that um, Fazila and Sandra Major, Fazila Aswat, Aswat, Sandra Major, who worked with Joe and were there when she was murdered, they could have walked away from politics and said, oh, you know, I'm traumatized, I can't have anything to do with it. But they made it their mission to get me up and running as an MP. And, you know, uh, Fazila said, I'll give you six months, Tracy. Uh, Sandra was my caseworker, but they basically, it was like doing a PhD in politics. They taught me what the role was because uh, I didn't really understand the role. And they helped me get established, um, get an office, get things in, in, in um, processes under, underway, help me with hiring. You know, those two women, uh, I owe them so much and they, they, I don't think they get the plaudits that they've deserved. Um, their courage and their determination to survive and to give back to their community was incredible. I will never, ever be able to thank them enough. And are they still working for you? No, Fazila did leave after six months and Sandra retired after get, after working for me, uh, I think, for about 18 months. Um, and now she's in happy retirement. But, you know, she knows both of them knew the community really well and they really did. Um, you know, they did their bit to rebuild and to heal. And your career, I mean, do you, th do you think you'd have stood for part, you obviously wouldn't have stood specifically in Batney and spending that by-election, obviously without the tragedy that happened, but do you think you'd have stood in 2017 somewhere? Um, no, no, no. I did, I did many years ago um, because people were encouraging me to think about politics. Um, the Labour Women's Network have um, a course, a weekend course, but if you want to step up into politics. And I did the course and I thought, I, absolutely not for me. Oh my God, I'd be terrible. Why? I just, I just was too, um, I just didn't have the language, didn't sit easy in my mouth. You know, the, all the, the understanding of the Labour Party, the, the, um, the, just the words that you have to use as an MP. I, I, it ended with some media practice 
And uh, I just had my head in my hands watching myself <laughs> absolutely flounder trying to understand this task that we were given. Um, but actually it was incredibly helpful on reflection. And I did meet some amazing women who then went on into, into other roles to step up. And I'm hoping that the Joe Cox leadership program does the same, you know, that, that the only way we change anything is to get more women into senior roles and whether that's in politics or whether that's in your local PTA um, or whether you counsel, you know, it's really important. And um, only, only recently, you know, seeing, you know, uh, the Northern uh, powerhouse meetings where it's all men and, um, Certainly, the the um, metro mayors currently are all men. So we have a job of work to do to get more women in senior roles. So I would encourage anybody who's thinking about it to do some of these courses, because at least, if nothing else, it gives you confidence about yourself to speak up in public. So what what sort of words then were, 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 did you find difficult to deal with, or what, what was the what was the problem when you you went to that first Labour Women's Network meeting? Did it feel was it was the language too political? Was it too parliamentary? Was it not explained well enough? Um, I think it was just words that were not words I normally use. So you could say, for example, reindustrialization <laughs> of our heartlands in a sustainable way. I mean, that is not a phrase you say every day of the week. No. So it's 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 trying to memorize a whole new script. And, um, you know, trying to hit the points that were requested in this task. And, you know, I was just self-conscious because I'd spent 30 years playing other people. And this was about who's Tracy Brabin. And, um, you know, who are you? What are your values? What do you believe? Rather than being being a character. And it's taken me, an, a, you know... A, a no, you know, a number of years to really understand my strengths, what I do genuinely believe, what I, what is the hill for me to die on, you know, the, the my values and um, um, the things that are important to me. But I uh, I would say that I think it also gives you an authenticity that I've lived a life beforehand that I'm not. You know, I'm not somebody that's yearned to be an MP that spent all my life. You know, I did PPE, then was an advisor to a member of parliament and then tried in seats elsewhere. You know, I do I do feel I can speak from the heart. And, you know, those Labour values have been with me all my life from growing up in, you know, on the estate in Batley as a free school meal kid, you know, struggling in a difficult industry my own kids being on free school meals you know i i do believe the you know the things that i've experienced in my life you know my involvement with the trade union movement campaigning and so on they they give me authentic labor values that aren't necessarily those words but absolutely um authentic hopefully a reflection of what a labor mp is so figuring out who you are um i suppose for a lot of actors that must be a bit of an issue that you're continually playing other people and I imagine you funnel part of yourself through those characters um, because you're drawing on previous experience to imagine how someone would feel in a given situation. But is that quite a common thing for actors? I mean, obviously I know a few actors and I've done a little bit of it myself, but um, is that a kind of affliction? Is that the affliction of the actor that, that you spend so much time imagining yourself as other people? Figuring out who you are sometimes doesn't happen. Well, I think that's potentially the case for uh, many creatives. Um, and isn't it true that lots of comics are miserable in real life? <laughs> it's um, true. Yeah, I'm not, I hope it's not true of me, but <laughs> true of some of my friends, yeah. 
<laughs> but also the flip side is true as well, that um, just before I became an MP, I'd played Paulina in Winter's Tale. And it's the first time I'd, I'd done a Shakespeare. I've got a Northern accent, so Shakespeare uh, wouldn't be a casting director's natural home for me. But there was something about her steel and her ability to speak truth to power, her determination to always be honest um, and to, you know, and to guide and drive and protect um, you, you know, the thing that she loved. There was something about the steel of that character that stayed with me, that enabled me to um, gather my strength and gather my courage. Um, and I don't think I would have necessarily had that had I just been doing a comedy. Maybe, I don't know, but I think sometimes it's it's also helpful that the research and the development that you do to play a character also helps you grow as a human being as well. Um, and I, I think there is a curiosity about creative folk and they're always magpies and, you know, looking at new thinking, new ideas, research, um, and, you know, when you're developing characters, particularly about how people think, that is helpful for you to understand who you are, yeah. And I always think about drama in schools. It's so It's so tragic that drama is falling out of the curriculum there's less drama teachers less offer for drama as a, um, a subject in class and I always thought well it's free therapy for kids it's ways to work through things you know to pretend to be in a situation is so helpful um, to sort your head out it's such a shame that that's falling by the wayside it's also I, I mean I love drama at school I always thought it was a bit like sociology. I thought it was like a way of practically understanding how society and people work. That it it, it really tests you to think about other perspectives. I thought That's it was so intellectually yeah. stimulating. And certainly being in other people's positions, trying to make decisions about why on earth would they say that in this, you know, in this scene. And you have to find a reasoning and an understanding about why that would happen. Um, and so it does give you an opportunity to think about other characters. I mean, there are actors, obviously, who play Hitler and, and other vile, you know, people in history, but they have to humanise them. And certainly the way you see Gillian Anderson at the moment playing uh, Margaret Thatcher, she's got her own view on what makes her tick. In, uh, you know, informed by the writer's view of what makes her tick. So that creative sort of, um, uh, I, I don't know, crucible is always good to understand the human condition. You mentioned Shakespeare there and how, because of your accent, you might not be a, a casting director's dream, which is a bit, I mean, that may well be the reality and it's, it's sad uh, that it is. Do you think there is a snobbery within acting and, and an outside towards it of people with Northern accents, people who act in things like soaps rather than posher types who do Shakespeare? Well, certainly um, as an actor, I never played a character that wore a suit because I'd got an accent is my understanding. And because I'm, I'm, you know, um, uh, a cheerful, optimistic character. I don't know whether I didn't look like I was meaty or weighty enough to play solicitors or lawyers or judges. But there is something, of course, more seriously about access into the industry. And that's why I was really proud to co-chair the Acting Up Report with Gloria, who you'll know, Di Piero, um, and the understanding that, you know, just even the number of BAFTA winners looking at which schools they went to 
are overwhelmingly privately educated in comparison to the statistics for the rest of the country. Now, why is that? And you just look at Eton or these amazing schools and they've got sound studios, they've got places where orchestras can perform, they've got technicians on site, they've got full theatres. And the parents who choose those schools don't do it necessarily because they want their kids to be actors, but it's the enrichment and the added value of, the, of that education. And it's so heartbreaking that so many of working class kids aren't getting that access. And certainly I've raised it with ministers on, on so many occasions. And their response is, well, you can have it as after school clubs, but it isn't the same because then you have to pay for it. Then it's about logistics, about getting home after your club. And I just don't think it's open to everyone in the same way. And it's really difficult to get into the sector and into the industry, but it's also harder to stay in if you have no savings. And that's something that is really heartbreaking looking at the sector at the moment, that all the people we're going to lose are those ones that have no family support, uh, aren't living in London, in their parents' house, and can just wait it out. And so many people will go. And with the Musicians' Union saying one-third of uh, musicians are saying they're going to leave, all of that training, dedication, practice, and they're leaving the industry. And I bet a pound, a pound to whatever, <laughs> I'm not going to say that, that uh, uh, they are going to be people who come from working class backgrounds. The similar barriers, barriers exist in politics because it's very rare that someone can afford to give up a full-time job to campaign in an election that they might not win. Those similarities are, are present in both. How do you think we get more working class voices into Parliament? I think that is a really powerful point and something that I'm very concerned about, that standing to be a candidate can be years where you've got to be campaigning, potentially take uh, reduce your hours. You might have caring responsibilities. This really impacts on women coming into politics. I think it starts earlier than that, though, that... I love visiting schools. It's one of the really great parts of the job. And I visit schools that don't have a school council, that have never spoken about parliament, that have never had outside visitors talking about it. And it is about giving uh, young people the skills and the confidence to start campaigning locally, to give them that ability to gather people together around them. But also your point about the economics is really, really valuable. And I think there was some work going on to investigate potential financial support for candidates. But of course, there are so many and resources are stretched so thin within political parties. But it's so deeply frustrating that so often it's those with family money that can afford to wait it out and keep trying in different seats. And I would say that it's about, from a feminist point of view, it's about women supporting other women. So if your mate is standing as a candidate, help them out with childcare, you know, give them a job that they can do in the evenings, um, help them out with a, you know, if, if, if they need support, get, uh, they don't have a car, helping them get around the district. You know, it's how we work collectively to get our individual working class voices into that building. And, and just uh, obviously can't resist these parallels with acting, but um, I think any actor would, would like to be a, a leading lady or, or leading man at some point in their career. Applying that to politics then, 
at the moment you 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 have a you have a big role you're a front bencher you're part of the shadow culture team um but do you do you aspire to play the leading role one day would you like to be leader of the labor party <laughs> honestly i'm astonished i'm even here let alone leader of the labor party you know it 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 never goes away that council flat in batley you know my mom still lives around the corner i know where i've come from and even to be you know here is the most extraordinary journey the most extraordinary privilege and to go back into schools uh, you know the school where i grew up where i went and uh, to windmill and to say you can get into parliament you can be a representative for your community it does feel like the most outrageous thing to say for so many kids in families that are you know finding it tough but to to be an advocate for that journey is enough and certainly i love i love standing up and i love speaking and i love being an advocate for my community and i love getting those wins and certainly um uh, it was a wee while ago now but to get free childcare for fostered 30 hours of free childcare for fostered children um and to get the government to come on board with that honestly i was as high as a kite for months and it was like i'd got a job on a really big telly you know the wins are as satisfying but they're just in a different way uh but no i'm just loving every moment of where we're at and of course i mean let's not forget i'm also standing to be the west yorkshire mayor so uh, that will be another uh, level of exposure i suppose particularly when all the metro mayors around the country are all men um, there will be a lot of focus on the first ever female Metro Mayor. So, yeah, that's an opportunity, I suppose, to get a bit, you know, to, to get into people's consciousness that actually women can break that Metro Mayor glass ceiling. Um, but no, I'm really happy going on a day to day basis and achieving as we do. And do you help colleagues and do they ask you for, I mean, when you sit in the House of Commons, do you see other people speak as a as a professional actor, do you ever think, oh, enunciate, dear, or, you know, deliver that line better? Do people come to you and go, Tracy, I need a bit of help with my speech, or how can I be a better speaker on the floor of the house? I wouldn't dare offer my <laughs> advice to anybody. Um, in fact, I've had to learn my own lessons because my first outing at the dispatch box, you realise that if you're just looking at your notes, everybody just sees the crown of your head. So I, I had to give myself a few lessons as well about uh, being more relaxed. So your shoulders drop, breathing, really important, um, but also lifting your head as if to the gods is um, also very important. And um, presentation is more and more um, uh, important, I think. But didn't it show that uh, there is one rule for women and one rule for men during the shoulder gate drama? Um, when I was at the dispatch box showing a bit of shoulder, that actually there is more um, attention paid to women in those public roles when they are up and speaking than men. And men do get away with it. And women do are under ridiculous amounts of unnecessary sexist scrutiny. Has that made you think again about what you would wear, though? Have you thought, I'm not going to wear that again because I can't be doing with a fuss? Or have you thought, sod it, I'll wear what I like? Um, I do think that if I wore a, short, um, a dress that was slightly off the shoulder, it would relate back to that. So it would be making a point. I wouldn't wear it without thinking. So if I was to wear it, it would be to make a point. Um, but uh, no, I don't feel it's adjusted what I wear. 
I think there is something about going for mayor that I feel uh, there is something about that sense of authority and handling large budgets. And so obviously you you need to um, be maybe potentially dressed a little bit more soberly. I love a 1950s frock, um, but uh, there's a time and a place for that. But, you know, I am going to work and uh, the House of Commons is a workplace. So you wouldn't necessarily go to work in your pajamas, uh, <laughs> no. so, unless you're working from home, which we're all loving doing at the moment. Uh, so you know, you you do make a you do take a view. I mean, guys have it easy, don't they? They just wear a suit, a shirt, and a tie, um, and and some pull it off more than others. But you know, there is an unfairness about what women wear, what their uniform is, for uh, a, a public-facing important role, and the pantsuit of Hillary Clinton's. You know, is iconic, isn't it? But obviously, she made a decision to wear something very straightforward that you could just take off the rack without thinking. The other thing I think, and it's only just occurred to me now when you talk about standing at the dispatch box and having to raise your head, is that in the House of Commons, you're effectively performing in the round if you're at the dispatch box because half of the people are behind you, really. I mean, did you ever perform in the round as an actor? Is there any skill you can draw on there? Um, I think uh, certainly you're absolutely right. Um, it is in the round. And also it is to the cameras as well. So there is a skill about talking to the cameras and talking to the people in the room that there are there are many uh, politicians who can pull that off uh, to make sure that it's delivered um, to the gods as well as intimately to those behind you. Um, certainly there is something about a sweep of the arm that opens up the conversation to uh, more people. And, uh, you know, it's definitely something that others are trying to, have obviously tried to nail. The lean on the dispatch box, which makes it look more relaxed and convivial. The way that Jeremy Hunt puts his speech on many books, so it's higher. So his head is raised. People are having their own tricks, aren't they? Um, and certainly I know of witnessing Kia, the way that he holds it very firmly and then uh, steps away and comes back. Everybody has their own um, little ways of dealing with it. Holding it firmly is handy because then you don't visibly shake, <laughs> I guess. You kind of, it, it's a way of sort of pumping your adrenaline into the box and kind of steadying yourself. I, I wanted to ask you something earlier, actually, and I forgot to. When you talked about using that phrase, reindustrializing our heartlands, I mean, stuff like that is fine, I guess, at a policy seminar. But if you were to say that to a 20 year old in, in Batley and Spen, I mean, even if you said it to a 40-year-old, people wouldn't know what it meant. One of the gifts, I guess, that you have with your with your background is the importance of communicating to people in language that they understand. And obviously, in acting, that is crucial because otherwise people won't understand what your character is on about or what's happening in that scene. The, the language of politics now is, is so impenetrable to so many, and it's not that we need to dumb it down, but do you think part of not just getting young people, working class people, women, but just getting more people interested in, and engaged in democracy is about demystifying some of the language about politics. There's no doubt about it. And certainly talking about the um, the devolution deal, we had a, a seminar from one of the academics um, in the Lords who was uh, bringing through carrying through the devolution deal and the language he was using. And I just was thinking, if any young person was on this call, they'd just have completely zoned out. They wouldn't care less that devolution gives them agency over their lives and some choices about the skills that they learn and their futures. And it is about translating 
what government have put in place into ordinary language and whether that's climate change about clean air for your kids about whether it's a cycle lane to get to work so you can be healthier you know trying to um, make those decisions made by parliamentarians actually impact on your life and I try and say to people that you know not being able to get an appointment at your doctors is political it's about who are you choosing to represent you and be your voice it's not having a boss that can take your grant to a regular session at the hospital is political you know, that that is trying to get that message across that it isn't all highfalutin, you know, conversations in Parliament. It's about what happens on the ground. And that's why I really do think our councillors are undervalued and underpaid because they are the ones that are really the bridge between the community and the parliamentarian often. And certainly as mayor, I'm going to have a backbench councillor committee because they're the ones really plugged in they're the ones that are making massive differences on whether that's a community group, whether that's finding, you know, um, a, a mum and toddler group for a, a mum who's isolated or lonely. You know, they are really changing lives and really unsung. But you're absolutely right about demystifying that language, about emboldening people who say, oh, I don't do politics. Oh, I don't know what they're talking about. Actually, you do. You're on a zero hours contract. You can't have time off for your for your uh, scans for your baby. You know that's politics. It's all intensely political, and it's it always amazing to talk to politicians who are who are doers. It's about action. It's about sorting stuff out. And sometimes, I think some of the people that you described who come from that special advisor background for some of them very good friends of mine, and they're doers as well. It can only be it can all be about a bit of the grand plan sometimes, and it's doesn't necessarily harm politicians to have that element to them but as well as being a doer and a campaigner and sorting out problems and that's why he came into politics do you also sometimes think well I need to kind of flesh out what Tracy Brabian's political philosophy is and where I stand and my view on the state and the private sector and what sort of economy I want and you know if Brabianism was to ever become a thing what would it be oh my goodness that is a terrible question <laughs> thank um, you I think compassion. Um, uh, uh, I don't know. I think it's about fairness, isn't it? That we can see around us the lack of opportunity and lack of fairness to access those opportunities, uh, uh, fundamentally because of where you were born, what your parents did, how much your parents earn. It's just, um, it lacks fairness. And actually, we all suffer if there is not that widening of opportunity. And certainly, um, you know, we were talking about Coronation Street, having those working class voices talking about working class lives gives all of us opportunities to talk about those very serious issues that they're discussing and potentially to change politics. But it's about giving um, all of us the status that is equal to change our society and to have an input into society. And certainly um, having spent a number of years volunteering with Freedom From Torture in a writer's group, um, working with torture survivors and the fact that they were waiting for leave to remain and they had no funds and they spend all their day going from food bank to food bank while raising their children. And you think you have so much to give 
and yet you can't work. You're not allowed to work. You've got so much to contribute that I am learning so much from you, more, you know, more than potentially they're learning from me. It seems so unfair that just because of your circumstances and your current status that you can't add your wisdom to our world. So I know it sounds all sort of woolly, but there is that there is that sense about um, opportunity and that uh, being a working class warrior, that um, opportunity is for everyone to fulfill their potential. And uh, that is also about health inequality, that you can't fulfill your potential if you are suffering ill health and you can't get um, support for that. So it is about fairness and certainly looking at, you know, at other countries in the world who have managed to create a fairer society. It's not impossible. We don't have to continue in the ways we've always done things. You know, we can be quite radical in that and, and say, you, you know, there is a time for bold politics. And I think as we rebuild from COVID, this is a time, if we ever wanted to change anything in our society, now is the time to say what really did work, what do we want to hold, hold on to, and how can we rebuild better? And certainly a lot of that is rebuilding better for the North. That North-South divide is, is pernicious, it's been going on for far too long. And as the um, representative for towns and villages, I also would say that it's not just North-South, it's cities and towns. And that what I was saying about opportunity, that that opportunity for all, irrespective of where you live, should be um, a priority for any, any government. Labour is also rebuilding after, um, although a, a great election result for you in getting re-elected, um, a terrible election result nationally, the worst since 1935. The Labour Party is now deciding where it stands and COVID in a way has put that on hold for now, but it's it's the job that Keir Starmer has to do is move on from Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. Um, just in the future direction of the Labour Party and your role in it and where you stand on where Labour should be, what kind of Labour person are you? Are you old Labour? Are you new Labour? Are you a Starmerite? Are you a, a, a Corbynista or a Blairite? How, how do you think of yourself in, in the Labour spectrum? I think it's um, a bit reductive to be, uh, I think, aligned particularly with one leader. I mean, remember, I served in Jeremy's shadow cabinet as the shadow secretary of state for DCMS, and I served Keir on the front bench and I uh, nominated Keir and Angela Rayner. Um, I think it is about winning and none of what we've talked about in the last 45 minutes hour is gonna happen unless we win. And the only way we're gonna win is if we work together. And I do think the Labour Party is that broad church. And I think once you start going down the rabbit holes of, you know, of uh, division and, identity within the Labour Party, I think, unfortunately, it, it, it stops that creative problem solving because it stops you from listening to the other side's great ideas. So I'm a unifier. Somebody can work um, across, I would hope, across the whole of the party um, and, and win. And certainly being able to say that I've kept my seat when I know other great colleagues lost theirs, I do, I do think there is something uh, attractive to the public as well for people who are also saying we need to come together for, the, for our community's sake because you can have the best policies in the world 
But unless you take the people with you, you're not going to win. And all the best of the Labour did in government was because we were in government. You know, we actually could change the lives of the people that we represented. And opposition is really tough because you can't get as much actually done as you'd like uh, because you don't have your hand on the levers of power. You can make relationships with the Conservatives, you can get people on side, you can you can bargain, you can you know negotiate and put in written questions and campaign, but fundamentally you're not in the driving seat. So what we need is we need a Labour government. And I do think, I feel very optimistic about the future, and I think um, the direction that we're going in is really positive, given, like you say, the brutal defeats that we had. And I think we could actually make a difference. And how exciting would that be, Labour and Kieran number 10? You, um, Batley and Spenny's slap bang in the middle of the so-called red wall, really, which is not a phrase that uh, I particularly like, um, but that's what people call it. Talking of towns and cities, as you mentioned them, uh, Labour's vote uh, kind of st uh, stayed fairly robust in, in the metropolitan areas, but the, the areas that, that Labour has started to lose in Mansfield at the last one and Ashfield as well. Uh, Batley and Spen didn't go, and although you had your majority reduced, it's still quite a healthy majority, uh, particularly by the standards of the last election. Why do you think you were able to hold on to Batley and Spen when colleagues in similar seats couldn't hold on to their seats? Um, well, I, I, I don't know 100%, but I know that the Resolution Foundation did some really good detailed research that there was an equivalence between your majority and those families that were um, low-income families. So your percentage of low-income families versus your majority. And if there were more low-income families than your majority, you were more likely to lose your seat because those low-income families potentially didn't vote weren't engaged, or if they did, maybe uh, weren't engaged with what Labour was saying. And um, looking back at it, it does seem to have some um, authenticity about that, because certainly Dewsbury is next door. We have a very similar demogra demographic, but Paula's majority was smaller and her number of low-income families was higher and she did lose her seat. So there is also thrown into the mix um, uh, traditional Labour voters, whether that's Black, Asian and minority ethnic and students, you know, whether those people were more engaged to vote, um, what percentages you had of those uh, groups. Um, but I, I can't put my, you know, finger on it. I'm just incredibly lucky to have kept the seat and to, you know, be continuing to campaign. But potentially also Labour, Batley and Spen, what we've been through as well. Uh, I wonder whether there's still an echo of that, that actually we're a Labour seat from losing Joe and that that sense that when I was elected in the by-election there were people that gifted me their vote and they normally vote conservative they normally vote Lib Dem they gifted me the vote and then potentially they saw that uh, you know I was a, a hard-working MP and they continued with that vote so I don't know um, but that's something to look into potentially around that demographic. You're standing to be the Labour candidate for the West Yorkshire mayoral election, which will take place in May next year, which and the the the, the city region or the metro region, whatever these things are called, especially Leeds, Bradford and some of those areas around there. So when will Labour officially pick its candidate? Well, we, we're in the last week and uh, we're all slightly weary. It's very exciting because I knew it was going to be December, but I didn't know there was a specific yeah. date. 
December the 11th, midday, is the deadline. And there's some really good, you know, there's three great candidates. There's myself, Susan Hinchcliffe, and Hugh Goldburn. Um, so it's a diverse slate, two women and a man of color, which actually is refreshing. Uh, but I, I think... Um, it's been an interesting campaign because this is an election like no other because it's all going to be online. And further on into May, we don't know what it's going to look like, how we're going to reach out to people. So we've been quite bold in our campaigning. It's all, you know, it's been texting and um, Zooms and coppers online and, you know, trying to get people in a different way. Phone banking has been really important. Um, but what's really it does, it does, you know, make me a bit worried is the low turnout potentially for May because people, obviously their lives are so busy and people have lost loved ones or they've been unwell or they've lost their job. The last thing they want to think about is a mayoral election, another level of politician, but trying to get that message across that it's an exciting opportunity, you know, 38 million um, for our community, opportunities for skills and transport and the green agenda and housing. Um, and trying to make that case to excite people. So I don't know how it's going at the moment. It, it looks good so far, but we don't know. Polls are always wrong, aren't they? Um, and we'll know on the 11th of December who our candidate is. And as well as um, endorsements from across the community, you also have Doctor Who supporting you, Jodie Whittaker. Indeed, and lots of colleagues, actually. Uh, Julie Hesmond Howe, some amazing writers and actors have also um, shown their support for me. Um, I think it's great that people get excited about something, you know, that, that's new in the same way I used to do for other candidates. Jody and others have done that for me, that they've brought, um, you know, a bit of a bit of uh, uh, glitter to the campaign. And certainly I don't think I'd have gotten the Yorkshire Post front page without Jody. so I owe her a lot. <laughs> and uh, so if, let's say you win in, in May, would you stay as an MP as well, like Dan Jarvis did? Yeah, I think Dan really pulls it off. I don't think I could do the same. I do think, I think Sheffield's are over a million um, uh, constituents and uh, West Yorkshire is bigger. I think it's a job where you have to do it full time. And no disrespect to Dan, he's making it work. But but also just to manage people's expectations that I'm not going to throw my eight members of staff out of work during a pandemic. So there will be a transition period. And also we can't lose Batley and Spen. That has to stay Labour. So it's about identifying a candidate, working with uh, the local Labour Party uh, to make sure that we still keep Batley and Spen red. But won't you be a bit sad? You've not long entered Parliament and you're already planning your departure. But it's another way to serve, Matt. You know, I can serve Batley and Spen in, in a way that actually delivers. I can actually make things happen that make life better for the people of Batley and Spen and across West Yorkshire. As a, as a, a champion for my region, as a, a, a local woman, as a voice for my region, as an ambassador to bring in that international investment. And it's to continue a political journey but, but to do it in a way over the next three years that will absolutely bring big changes in a positive way to my community. Uh, and uh, hopefully you'll be um, not the only female Metro mayor, but you may well be the first. Do you think Labour will ever have a female leader? I think, of course, inevitably. 
Um, I am a feminist, but I nominated Kia because I knew we needed a, a leader that could unite us and get us over the finish line to win. But you're absolutely right. And there are, I'm not going to name names because it's always unfair, but aren't our front bench amazing? And certainly our women in the front bench and in the shadow cabinet are smashing it out of the park at the moment. And um, certainly, you know, having the first ever female shadow chancellor, uh, so many are doing amazing work, uh, getting our message out there and being absolutely exceptional on the media and so on. Uh, just, you know, we have a fantastic, diverse and inclusive Labour Party. And I'm really proud that we're over 50 percent women as well. So, of course, yes. So your political ambitions are now focused um, on the mayoralty rather than perhaps through the House of Commons. What, what about as an actor then? Do you, have you made a decision? Do you think I'll never act again? Or, or is that door always partially open? Would you be able to would you be able to take a role while still being a mayor? Or would those two things have to be completely separate? No, no, I couldn't do it. And in fact, my agent has kept me on her books and I kept saying, you have to let me go. <laughs> Tracy, there's this great job that's just come in and you would be you would be the prime minister in an episode of, oh, I've forgotten the name of the title, with John Sim, and it's all a conspiracy theory. Oh, Ashes to Ashes or something like that? Uh, I, I can't, um, I can't, a Cobra, Cobra. Um, and uh, she said, darling, you'd be marvellous. I'm like, I can't even do it. What are you even thinking about? Go away. Because actually, I've had an amazing career. I really have. I've traveled the world. I've met, I've met amazing people, you know, from my, my background to have done the work I've done. That's, that's 30 years of a fantastic job. And now I'm on to a new one. And I have no regrets. And to even have an inkling of a regret to want to go back to acting would be awful because I'd have a yearning um, about my past, but I really don't. And there is so much um, joy in this job and so much um, potential that I'm very excited about the next few decades ahead. Uh, Glenda Jackson obviously was an Oscar winner. He went on to be a Labour MP. Have you ever spoken to her about the transition from acting to politics? No, sadly, our, our, our worlds don't collide. But I know that she um, has just won many awards for Elizabeth is Missing, where she played a dementia, um, a, a, an older lady with dementia. And, um, you know, it never goes away, I don't think. If you're an actor, you're an actor. And certainly as something to do in your retirement, what an amazing thing. Um, and uh, I think she did us all proud. She definitely paved the way for me that, that there was a woman who'd done it before and I could look to her and say, well, she was successful and achieved a great deal. So I, I owe her a lot because she was very much a pathfinder. Um, but yes, who knows what the future holds? And the thing is that if I ever lost my job, I'd have to go back to my previous job, which is how I earn my living by being an actor and a writer. Um, but at the moment, that's not where I'm, you know, I'm focused. That was one job. Most people uh, in our society today have three careers because life is long. Pensions don't kick in till we're older. We're much healthier. And we're, you know, technology moves on. We all have to be light on our feet about our careers and how we make a living. So, yeah, I was an actor. I was a writer. I'm a politician. Who knows what's next? Well, who knows what the third career is? But you keep getting bigger. So you're a star of, of, of TV, now a star of politics. So... I think astronaut is probably the only the only conceivable place to go next. Conquer space. 
I don't know what's in your tea, Matt, but anyway. <laughs> Tracy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Good luck with the selection. And hopefully, you. hopefully you will become Britain's first female mayor. Yeah, wouldn't that be a good day at the office? <laughs> Well, there you go, Tracy Brabin. So many wonderful things in that interview. But I, the thing I hadn't considered was the insecurity of that career as an actor and how much that has impacted her politics. Um, far more beyond the, the, the cosmetic similarities between acting and politics about presentational skills. I'm amazed more Labour MPs aren't asking her for help presentationally. Um, or for her to write their speeches. We, the, the thing I didn't come on to that I really wanted to get onto was, and she mentions it, um, Tracy then became an actor on shows, uh, then became a writer, sorry, uh, on shows like Hollyoaks. And I was really interested in the transition from, from acting to writing, but you can't cover everything in these interviews, much as I try. Um, and it'll be interesting, of course, to see whether Tracy can become Britain's first elected mayor, first female elected mayor, uh, if indeed she becomes the Labour candidate next week. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, but what an amazing... I can't help feeling that she have been an actor has really equipped her well for just that constant sense of moving on, that having only been an MP for four years... She's already prepared to say, actually, I think I can make a bigger difference elsewhere and look to that mayoral vote next year and, and move on and leave the Commons behind, which for most politicians, I think would be, for most members of Parliament, would be a really difficult, uh, perhaps even impossible thing to, to do. Particularly when Labour is on an upward curve, it's not inconceivable that Labour might win the next election or come close to winning it, that Tracy Brabin would in the not-too-distant future, be able to be a cabinet minister, or indeed, even though she joked about it, who knows, become leader of the Labour Party, become prime minister. Um, Ronald Reagan, obviously, is the irresistible um, parallel when you think of uh, actors achieving high office. Um, but it was so good to talk to Tracy. And whenever I talk to a politician who is so clearly driven by action in, a, in the true practical sense... Um, I always seem more inspired. Maybe it's because there are th elements of my background that are very similar to Tracy's. Um, but when I worked for the Labour Party, they were always the politicians that I found it easier to work with. Maybe that's just what it was. The people who just wanted to get on and get stuff done, um, I, I always found them more, uh, the more inspiring. So it was an absolute pleasure to be joined by Tracy, star of Coronation Street. What's my mum going to say when I tell her that I've interviewed uh, Trisha Armstrong from Corrie? Um, thank you for downloading this. Don't forget you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Leave a review on iTunes. I know I pester you every week, but it really helps. Now, I know there are more important charity uh, campaigns at this time of year, but this is free. You get, to, you get to do a good deed at Christmas. Don't let this be your only good deed, by the way. Don't do this instead of donating to shelter. Um, but do it as well as, and then you'll be um, doubly blessed at Christmas. Oh, I'm going to leave it there. I've got on quite enough uh, for this episode. I'll see you next week. Ta-ra. Right.